Actually, can you stand as we hear God's word read? Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to cover the first, actually the first three verses today. Uh, I thought it would be the first four, but I was incorrect. It would be the first three verses. This is God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, these words are so simple, and it's in their simplicity that we see your beauty. Lord Jesus, it's in their simplicity that pierce us. It's in the simple nature of it that, Lord, confounds us. I pray, Lord, that this morning we would comprehend the uncomprehendable. Draw your people low that we may inherit your kingdom. For your glory, we pray. Do this in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, last week, if you remember, uh, we read, or I, I, we preached, I preached uh, just an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this week, we're going to start diving into the weeds of the particulars of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and now Jesus uses a term, um, give me just a second, Jesus uses a term in the Beatitudes that, that is translated, I think helpfully so, as blessed. Now, now the word blessed, as I, as I made, made mention last week, it's happy. Happy. Happy are those who don't live under their own autonomous self-rule, but live under the yoke of Christ. But the happiness, I want to be very clear, and I, I listened back to the sermon last week, and I don't think I was as clear on this, and I want to make sure I'm abundantly clear. The happiness that we have is not just because we're happy in some slap-happy way. I think I made that clear, but it's happiness because we rest under the favor of God. It's, it's happy because we're the ones, the people who, who follow after what Christ is saying are the ones who are approved by God. Now notice, I want you to notice two things in the Sermon on the Mount, before, or, or in the Beatitudes. If you notice, jump down to verse 3 and verse 10. And I want you to notice two things before we jump in. The, the first is the bookends of verse 3. And then verse 10, the, the first blessed is blessed of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he starts it with the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything he has in between is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God bookends the beatitudes. It bookends the, the blessedness. And here's the second thing I want you to just point out just before we jump in. Is, is verses 3, 4, and 5 all have to do with us vertical? Is our relationship with God vertically? 
And then verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, and 10 have to do horizontally. Or 7, 8, 9, and 10 have to do horizontally. But I want us to see, G.K. Chesterton once said, I think very helpfully, he said that the word paradox is truth standing on her, on her head to get attention. Okay, so let me say that one more time. Paradox, which is seemingly two contradictory truths, but the reality is, is there are two truths that are actually, they're standing on their head for us to all get our attention. And that's what he does. He gives us a paradox of the kingdom. And he says, happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. If you're taking notes there, I want you to see that the kingdom of God for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God for the poor in spirit. The rule and reign of God is for those who are poor in spirit. Happy is the one who is poor in spirit and is spiritually broken before God. I want you to think about how contradictory those two ideas are. Happy is the one who is spiritually broken before God. They recognize their spiritual bankruptcies before the Lord, and he calls them blessed. Happy are they. Now, this isn't just Jesus speaking. He's, he's referring to, I would actually argue, the, the bulk majority of the Old Testament. We see things like Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, Whatever he's about to say is really important. The one who inhabits eternity, what's he dwell with? I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who's of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite or the spiritually broken. Or take Psalm Psalm 34. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Right, Isaiah 66, like we read this morning. All these things my hand has made, says the Lord. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The person who is happy in the kingdom that Jesus is dawning is the person who is spiritually broken. So I want to I cover several things of what I mean by spiritual poverty, or poverty of spirit, if, the, if you will. The first is that poverty of spirit is not self-hatred, nor self-love. It's not self-hatred, and it's not self-love. You have guys like, if you, anyone, anyone ever, ever listens to any of the, what's called the modern atheists, or the guys like Christopher Hitchens, guys like Richard Dawkins, they would say that Christianity is very unhelpful because what it does is it, it, it puts a lot of guilt on people. That's what they would say. But poverty of spirit is actually not self-hatred. It's actually not self-love. It could be very easily heard, what I'm saying today, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. What you'll think is, well, you're, Daniel, you're saying I need to be poor in spirit, so I'll just go home and I'll hate myself, and that will fix it. And that actually won't fix anything. Self-hatred is an attempt to condemn oneself as a way to feel better. Self-hatred springs from the reality that people know they're sinners. It sounds like this. I hate myself. I'm a terrible person because of my past. Or I hate myself. I hate the way I continue to sin. 
Or I hate myself because I didn't fill in the blank. I hate myself because I wasn't able to blank. That's not poverty of spirit. Friends, brothers, sisters, that's not poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is not self-hatred because self-hatred is not according to God's design. You don't have the right to hate yourself. I want to say that one more time. You don't have the right to hate yourself. You don't have the right to hate your neighbor, and you absolutely don't have the right to hate yourself. And it's not poverty of spirit. You know, the same true of self-love. What ends up happening is people will hear the message of Jesus, and they'll hear Jesus say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they'll think, okay, well, Daniel's saying it's not self-hatred, so it must be self-love. I loved one, one sculptor. He sculpted what the modern man is, and it was just a guy hugging himself. And I would argue that really is pretty much what people end up trying to do. Rather than self-hate, they self-love. Self-love is the person embodied by a statue of a person hugging himself. But the problem is with our conception of humility altogether. Humility isn't thinking bad about oneself. It's actually not thinking about oneself at all. Christians are the only people in the universe who are able to be humble. We're the only ones in the entire universe who don't self-hate and who don't self-love. We're the only ones. Non-believers, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, non-believers will often ask, I know you've had these interactions, they'll say something like, so, pastor, pastor, I'm, I, I'm, I deal with homosexuality, but so that's what you're saying, pastor, is that's what's going to send me to hell. And what I want to say is, no, that's actually not what's going to send you to hell. You need to hear me very clearly if you're an unbeliever. It's not your homosexuality. It's not your lying. It's not your stealing that's going to send you to hell. It's your self-reliance that will send you to hell. I want you to hear that one more time. And if that's, the, if that's the measure, self-reliance, friends, then it really doesn't matter what sin they're dealing with, does it? If self-reliance, if God, if, since the poor in spirit, since you're not poor in spirit, God gives you over to the desire you want most, which is whatever you want. And friends, that's what it means to be a non-Christian. It's self-reliance. So that's the first thing it's not. Poverty of spirit is not self-hatred, and it's not self-love. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Poverty of spirit is not about finances. And you might think that's kind of strange. I'm even bringing this up at all, but I'll show you why I say this. Poverty of spirit is not about finances. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a parallel passage in the Bible that I think is really important we deal with. And it's actually Luke 6.20. If you want to turn there, you can. It's on the screen if you don't want to. It's, it's actually what Luke records of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, there's no caveat. There's no in spirit there, okay? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of, of God. So again, we, we, can, we can get into some, some of how does the Bible harmonize in that way and whatnot, but I, I want you to see that there's been people that's taken this and they've said, okay, look, blessed are you who are poor, so that means I just need to be poor. This is actually part of where the whole monastic movement came out of. People have always wondered, where, where do monks come from? Why do monks be monks? Why do monks sell all they have and move out to the desert? It's things like this. 
Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Or yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I want us to see that physical wealth can be a barrier to the kingdom of God. We need to see that. Physical wealth can be a barrier, but it's not the barrier. It can be a barrier because what it does is it helps us be self-reliant. That's how it can be a, a barrier. Jesus gives a really good example of this with the rich young ruler in Luke 18. You can turn there if you want, Luke 18. We're going to be looking at other places just to show all the, all the ways that Je- what Jesus says stacks up to blessed are the poor in spirit. But this is what he says. When Jesus heard this, basically that the man had kept all the commands that Jesus said, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now you might be thinking, well, Daniel, doesn't this contradict everything you just said? That it's about poverty of spirit, not poverty of finances? But don't miss what, Je- what Jesus says next in verse 26 and 27. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Notice what Jesus says. What is impossible with man. Okay, so it actually has nothing to do with his finances. It has everything to do with the impossibility of man. Is possible with God. You know, we have, there's a very important application I want to make here for public. It's, we're in an election year, so I'm, I'm going to mention this a lot. We need to know something about our social institutions. And simply it's this. Social, social institutions will always try to solve the world's problems through policies. And those policies are often financially motivated in some way or the other. And as Christians, we need to be very, very clear Those policies will never fix the human heart. Those policies will never fix the human heart because financial solutions aren't the problem. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're a Libertarian. I don't care what you are. Policies will never fix the human heart because the human heart is self-reliant. Jesus says in another place, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, I want to be very clear. There needs to be a clear warning as well here. If you are rich, and by the way, we live in the West, which means that every one of us in here are the 1% of the world that is wealthy. We're all wealthy. And you might be like, Pastor, I don't have any money in the bank. I don't care what's in your bank account. We're all wealthy. There's not one of us that doesn't have shoes on their feet. There's not one of us that doesn't have money at some level. We're all wealthy, and we need to hear that that wealth can absolutely hinder us from the kingdom because it makes us self-reliant. Poverty of spirit is not financial, but let me be very clear. It can, finances can hinder poverty of spirit. Okay? Here's the third thing I want you to see. Poverty of spirit, now let's start defining it as I want to define it. Poverty of spirit is spiritual bankruptcy. Poverty of spirit is spiritual bankruptcy. 
I actually think the NLT is really helpful here in the way they translate this. They said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who are poor and realize their need for him is who the kingdom of heaven is for. Now, bankruptcy, at its core, practically just means broken bank. If someone files bankruptcy, what they're saying is, my bank is broken. I can't pay this. But what we're saying and what Jesus is calling for is spiritual bankruptcy. It sounds like this. I am so desperately broken in and of myself that I could never repay what I owe. My spiritual bank is broken before God. The Christian is the one who's spiritually bankrupt and knows it. And let me go a step further and lives like it. We're gonna, we'll, we'll get into some of what that means in a second. But I want you to notice just an example of people who don't live like this in the Bible. We actually see, we could give many examples. I think one of the most searching is in the, in the book of Revelation, like we read this morning. Revelation 3. You can ter- actually turn there real quick. We're, we're going to spend some time looking at this. And it's the Laodiceans in the book of Revelation. But this is what Jesus says to them. And I just want you to picture being the Laodicean church, hearing this to them. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, verse 17, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, these, these believers, before we start, there's a temptation when you hear a text like what we're reading today, and we're reading these texts, that we'll be like, you know who needs to hear this? My Uncle Billy. My Uncle Billy, he's really proud. He needs to hear this. Brother, sister, friend, me, look in the mirror in myself. I need this this morning. You need this this morning. Jesus tells us what the people who will inherit the kingdom are like, and these people are on a trajectory away from the kingdom, and they don't even know it. The church's admission that they are rich, that they have prospered, that they need nothing, are evidence that they're actually poor and naked and needy. Jesus' analysis of them is that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This church in Laodicea does not see their own blindness their own nakedness, and ultimately their own sin and corruption. This is a spiritual parable, but picture it with me, if you will. Walking into a church and having a bunch of people who think they can see are blind as bats, naked as a jaybird, poor as all get out, and sitting around saying, we're wealthy, we have all that we need. And spiritually speaking, this is what happens to the church, to a church that says, we don't need anything. We have all that we need. The Christian is aware of his original sin and corruption. The Christian is aware that his heart only tends toward evil. The Christian sees him within himself still at war within the old man and cries out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? 
You know, I don't know the last time you've been criticized, but I'm often, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that God brings people in my life to criticize me at times. I really am. You know why? I think for this reason. Because what I want to do, my natural disposition is to say, that's not true. That's not true. This isn't true. That's not true. Blah, 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 blah. And the reality is I need to hear it and realize that whatever they're saying of me is infinitely worse. Even if it's not true, even if the thing that they're saying is like, that's not true, the reality is, is what's in me is far much worse than what's outside. And praise be to God that he doesn't say, that he doesn't say to them, hey, you guys can just stay there. He says to the church of the Laodiceans, I counsel you to buy from me, that's the Lord Jesus, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So he's coming to them, knocking on the door, saying, I'll clothe you. I'll give you wealth. But you have to see that you're naked. You have to see that you're poor. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, hear the Lord Jesus say this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Oh, church in the West, may we hear the Lord Jesus' word of rebuke. Be zealous and repent. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm wanting to come in. I'm saying to you, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him. That's what he offers to sinners. Christ has come for the spiritually broken. Hear what he says in another place. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. Friend, it is impossible to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ when we're still trying to keep on our disgusting rags of our own righteousness. I'll say it one more time. It's impossible to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ when we're still trying to wear our disgusting rags of our own. Jonathan Edwards, if you ever have questions about reality or about the Bible, just go look up what Jonathan Edwards said about it because he'll bring some clarity and maybe some confusion. But this is what he says. He is one that is the Christian, that is sensible of his own poverty, sees he has nothing of his own, he strips himself of all that he used to account his riches and esteems them as dung. When he comes into the presence of God, he comes as a beggar without money and without price. Christian, do you see your spiritual bankruptcy? And see, this is where I think we get it wrong. You're probably sitting there thinking at some level, well, pastor, this would probably be good if we had unbelievers here. This is where we get it backward. Actually, completely backward, I think. This is the entrance, this is entrance into the kingdom. But may I just say, and we'll hit this in a second, but this is also growth in the kingdom. We don't grow in the kingdom of God with spiritual haughtiness. We don't grow in the kingdom by being spiritually great. 
We grow in the kingdom. This is the inverse paradoxical nature of the kingdom. We enter the kingdom as children, and we live as children in the kingdom. I would argue the thing that keeps secular humanists from Christ is the fact that they want to approach Jesus as a dignified adult. Oh, Lord Jesus, I've heard you said this. There are no dignified adults in the kingdom of God. There are only beggars and needy children that come to him. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? So the poverty of spirit is spiritual bankruptcy. Fourth, and like I said, we're not going to hit the back part of this, these notes, because you're probably thinking I'm going very, very slowly. But poverty of spirit is accurate knowledge of self. Poverty of spirit is accurate knowledge of self. Here again, Matthew 5.3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for, them, for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Again, Calvin, very helpful. If you ever want to have questions about things, Calvin is typically pretty helpful. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. He says, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourself. And the problem is, is that knowledge of ourself, knowledge of ourself is not a bad thing. Knowledge of ourself is actually a really good thing when understand stood rightly. And what we have is we have a generation, we have people, we have all the surrounding culture goes out to find themselves. And what they come back with is something that sounds like, look at how good I am, look at how strong I am, look at how happy I am. And you know what's so sad? At how frail that is. I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody that's been on a spiritual journey like that. Because when they come back, they're actually far more frail than they were before. And it's because they actually haven't hit rock bottom. What they've hit is they've tried to construct some, some little ivory tower in their own soul. And then every time someone tries to topple and show, well, I don't know if you're as good as you think you are, they get really upset. Accurate self-knowledge is that we are, we are spiritually bankrupt. That's accurate self-knowledge. Jesus gives another example of this. In Luke 18, he, says, he gives a perfect example of this. And he, gives, he, he compares this with two men. He says the first man being a Pharisee. Now, I, this is another paradox. This is the same paradox of Matthew 5.3 worked out in a parable. And he says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Listen to what he prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice, notice I don't want us to just make, skip over this. this. This Pharisee is thanking God. This Pharisee is praying. He's saying things that sound okay. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not, I'm not this awful person. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not unjust. Thank you that I haven't cheated on my wife. 
Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But you know what the only thing worse than being an extortioner, unjust, adulterer is? Is being proud that you're not an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer. The only thing worse than doing and committing sin that would put you on death row is being proud that you haven't done it. The only thing worse than being a great big sinner is pride that you're not one. The only thing worse than sin is the denial that sin itself exists within us. It's one thing for a person to struggle with sin. It's an entirely different act for them to deny it and act as though it's not real. But notice the one who's commended in this parable. This, is, this, should, this should floor us. This would be like the example of Jesus being like, there was a, there was a priest and there was somebody on death row. Because this is what a tax collector deserved. In verse 13 and 14, don't miss it. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's not a, a sinner. It's the sinner. He's the only one he's concerned about. The tax collector, on the other hand, wouldn't even lift his head to heaven. He knew, he was so overwhelmed by his sin. He knew himself rightly. And he knew he deserved death. He knew he was spiritually bankrupt. He knew what was inside of him, and it was gross. And listen to what Jesus says of this man. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think C.S. Lewis really hits it on the head here. He says, whenever we find... Brothers and sisters, if there's a quote to write from C.S. Lewis, write this one in your Bible. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel we are good, above all, that we're better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. Hear that again. Whenever you think whatever there is in your life that you're thinking, well, I'm better than this person, You're not being acted on by God. You're being acted on by the devil. And he goes on to say, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Christian, this isn't just entrance into the kingdom. This is life in the kingdom. This is not just entrance to, to, some, to some heavenly abode somewhere. This is our life. This is who we are. Boy, I hate comments when I hear things like, what do I need to do to get to heaven? What do I need to do? That's like my son coming to me and being like, Dad, how far can I go into sin? How far can I go into rebellion before you disown me? I, I guess as far as you want, son. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's the wrong question. Jesus says in another place, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The baptized person, they're spiritually bankrupt. But it's true also in verse 20 when he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. They're also spiritually bankrupt. They're no less spiritually bankrupt. Growing in the kingdom of God is still coming to Christ like a little child. 
And you know what happens when this happens as a church, when we do this? We would be an impossible people to offend. You, you could not, if you've ever noticed, you know how you know that someone is spiritually broken? Try to offend them. Do this sometime. You'll actually see where they're at spiritually. Try to make them angry. Try to insult them. Try to divide them. You can't. There's nothing else you can do to them. The spiritually bankrupt person is the person who has nothing. They realize I have nothing. You insult them, they're like, yeah, I mean, that, that's not true what you said, but I'm way worse than what you're talking about. I'm way worse. Poverty of spirit. I want you to give you this last, last piece and then we'll close up. Poverty of spirit is the posture of faith. Do not hear me say today, go home and, go home and try to be poverty in spirit. I mean, sure, maybe. But poverty of spirit is the posture of faith. It's the, it's, it's the manner by which faith comes to Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus says over and over and over again, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. We must all become children to enter the kingdom Unless we come in needy spiritual dependence, we will never enter the kingdom of God. I love what one commentator said. I couldn't even rephrase it in a way that would be helpful, more than what he did. He says, salvation is by faith alone, but poverty of spirit is the posture. Friend, it's the posture of faith. When we reach upward, we're not reaching up saying, look at me, look how great I am. We're reaching up saying, I need you, and without you, I am poor and needy and broken. Here's some application for us as we conclude. Do you know how gross division is in the church? I don't know if you've ever thought about it before. How gross spiritual haughtiness is in our midst. James talks about it. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's what happens. When people stop being spiritually bankrupt, you give me a church that's spiritually divided, and I'll show you a church that is spiritually haughty. You show me a church that's, that's infighting, that's, that's, that's fighting with one another, that's not forgiving each other, and I can guarantee you there's a church filled with spiritual haughtiness. And he goes on to say, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. No, no, no. It's unspiritual, it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Don't look at your neighbor. Look at your own soul in the mirror. But because the fruit of this, the fruit of poverty of spirit, is what James will go on to describe. The fruit of righteousness, sown as individuals, but collectively as the body, is first pure, and then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And we'll conclude with this. The kingdom is available for the spiritual 
spiritually destitute. The kingdom is available for the spiritually destitute. It'd be as if Jesus is saying, I thought of this this morning, it'd be as if Jesus is saying, hey, we're going to open up Disney World for today, but we're only going to open it up to the homeless. That's what he's offering to us. The problem is we're the homeless. And the only ones who are able to enter are the ones who are homeless. And brothers and sisters, that's me and you. The kingdom of heaven is here in the sense that Jesus' rule and authority is recognized, yet it waits to be fully seen. And we look forward to that day. I want to end with this, this illustration, and then we'll, then we'll end. In the Chronicles of Narnia, I love, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. The movie, maybe you've seen the movie, if not the books. Uh, but there's a, there's a character in... Um, What's it? Prince Caspian, it's called. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. And his name is Eustace. And he's the cousin of the siblings. Now, Eustace, he is a nasty, he's a nasty character. He's a nasty little creature of a cousin. Um, and in Narnia, he's so nasty, actually, that he becomes a dragon. And, and the dragon, actually, because he becomes a dragon, it shows what his character has always been like. But there comes a point in the book when it, it, he, he has to stop being a dragon and become a boy in order to continue. And the only way he can stop, now he tries, like there's this whole thing where he tries to take off the scales and he can take one layer off and two layers off. But then there's a point where he says, Aslan, who represents the Lord Jesus, comes to him and says, I can take it from you. And he says something to the effect of like, I'll, I'll have to strip you before we do anything else. And then Eustace describes it this way. He says, The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever plucked the scab off a sore place. And this, brothers and sisters, is what it's like of what Jesus is saying has to happen. Aslan proceeds to peel the scaly layers off Eustace, and he becomes a boy again. And that, brothers and sisters, is what must happen. This is why I want to spend a whole week talking about verse 3. Because unless this happens in us, we're going to be that disgusting dragon just taking one layer off at a time. Unless Jesus Christ first strips us you will not inherit the kingdom. Unless Jesus removes every ounce of spiritual pride, you will not enter the kingdom. And how this sounds, coming from the heart of the the, the new boy that's been stripped, sounds like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The kingdom of heaven is available for the spiritually bankrupt. And there's only a simple question for you this morning. Are you spiritually bankrupt? And not just once. I'm not talking about just some once walking an aisle, saying a prayer. I'm saying day after day after day. When you walk close with Jesus, let me say it like this. When you walk close with the Lord Jesus, there is no spiritual haughtiness. It's only spiritual bankruptcy. 
the more we look at the Lord Jesus, and this is what ends up happening, people will think, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't see my sin more when I see Jesus. Oh, friend, if you're not seeing your sin more when you look at the Lord Jesus, you're not looking at him rightly. You're looking at him wrongly. The kingdom of heaven is available for the spiritually bankrupt. I want you to hear, I just want to end with this. There's hope for dragons like me. There's hopes for dragons like you. And there's hope for every single dragon you know in your life that you think there's no way, there's no way that one will come to faith. Oh, friend, you're not the one who does the the stripping of the, the ugly layers. Listen to what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, that's the one who conquers in Christ. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Friends, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.